0: Take your Bibles tonight. We are in back in our study uh, through the pastoral epistles, and we are in Titus chapter 1 this evening. It's been several weeks since we've been in there. I've been uh, looking to dive back into this study, and to be honest, I was wanting to make sure that I was approaching uh, the book of Titus correctly. It was one I have never really studied through in much in depth, and I'm glad that I took the time because Titus is... A short book, but it is packed. It is packed with a lot of stuff. Um, But we are going through the pastoral epistles. We have just, well just, a couple weeks ago we finished the book of 1 Timothy. Where Paul is of course writing to his disciple Timothy. As Timothy is ministering in the church at Ephesus. And here we have the book of Titus. A similar letter. One which you will find as we are going to survey tonight. It is very, very similar to the book of Timothy, except he's writing it now to Titus in a much different context, much different location, a much different place uh, in the world. But it, you can uh, see right away that the same message is being impressed upon Titus to speak and deliver. As we have said at the beginning of this study, the pastoral epistles, 1st uh, and 2nd Timothy and Titus, represents um, sort of a passing of the baton, so to speak, from Paul to these younger preachers. Paul, of course, is nearing the, the end of his life and he is now engaging them and he's instructing them as they are to take sort of up the, the role and the mantle as the primary preachers of the gospel in these churches. And yet... As I already mentioned, Timothy and Titus are ministering in very divergent, very different locations, and yet they are called to minister the same truth. The same two words that are frequently used in Timothy are even more frequently used here, those words being sound doctrine. The doctrine which edifies the church, builds up the church, which should define those who are in the church, is here being impressed upon Titus. It's the same doctrine, the same gospel and truth which was being impressed upon Timothy. And this is Paul's emphasis, that regardless of where you are, regardless of where you're ministering, sinners need to be shown the truth shown the good news, shown the fact that they have a Savior who saves them and changes their lives. And such is what he's going to do here to Titus. So my goal tonight here um, is to introduce to you this entire book, which may seem daunting to you, but it's a short book and we're not going to go through it verse by verse. But I want to give you a broad look at what Paul is trying to do through this letter because I think this... Uh, Of all the pastoral letters is one in which the whole thing works as a singular argument. You know, one thing that I think has helped but also hindered our Bible reading many times are the chapter and verse divisions. You know, of course, those aren't inspired. They weren't there when they originally were writing these letters. These were just letters. They were just sending them to churches. So they didn't have a verse break where they broke up a chapter. It was one long letter in which you can really see an argument being made. And sometimes I think we kind of don't often see that because of the verse markings. They're good. They're good for preaching and for, you know, what I'm doing right now. uh, Because otherwise we'd be lost in trying to find paragraph 4 in line 27. And that would be hard. But here it's it's a little easier. But you have to remember, originally there was no such markings. And it was just a letter. Like you would get a really long email from a cousin or something. (laughs) Um, And that's really what it's like. Uh, and so here, Paul is making this argument, an argument in which he is striving for Titus, a young preacher much like Timothy, to contend, to fight, to sort of war for the gospel in sort of a culture that was antagonistic towards such truths. It's similar to Titus, or excuse me, to Timothy. Uh, of course, it was probably written around the same time. Likely, it was written at the same time as First Timothy, such as why it has a similar message. The message, of course, is what does the church do? What does the church say? What does the church look like? How do we function as the church? And even though they have those similarities, you'll notice if you read through it, just read through it in a sitting, You can feel a different emphasis, even as Paul is writing the same exact things. Like in the first chapter, where he talks about sort of the qualifications of elders and whatnot. It will be very reminiscent to 1 Timothy chapter 3, but you'll notice a very different emphasis. He stresses something different, and I think that's due to the different audience. Titus is here ministering in an island called Crete. The island of Crete, of course, is off of the coast of Greece at sort of the mouth of the Aegean Sea, and it was an island that's very popular, very prominent in a lot of Greek mythology, mostly known for its um, vileness and immorality. It's It's an island. Crete is known for being an island full of ferocious, fierce, wicked people. It has that sort of stigma attached to it. And such is why in chapter 1 verse 12, Paul even makes reference to this. Notice what he says. One of themselves, one of your own Cretan natives, even a prophet of their own said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. And he says this witness is true. He's referencing an older prophet named, uh, if I can get this word right, Epim- Epimenides. Uh, let's try and say that five times fast. Epimenides, native of Crete. Uh, he, he was writing and speaking 600 years before Jesus. And he was sort of writing about his own people. And Paul is just referencing this guy just to sort of remind Titus the type of people you're dealing with. They're... Addicted to falsehood. They're enslaved to their own bellies is what he's saying. They're enslaved to sin. We can probably all relate with that idea. But here Paul is is pressing into that idea. Titus, your audience is a difficult audience. The reputation that they've garnered through hundreds of years of history isn't just a fabricated reputation. It is true. And this is the the exact people, exact ministry to which Titus was called. If you read Acts chapter 2 verse 11, you'll find that there probably was churches on the island of Crete right at that moment. It talks about how they can speak in tongues the wondrous works of God, even to those that are from the islands of Crete. So here Titus may or may not have been working in a church that was established by Paul or one of the other apostles. But regardless of that, the message is this. Paul is absolutely confident that this gospel, this sound doctrine by which he was just totally enraptured, in which he was trying to get Titus to be equally as focused, can change anyone's life. It can change anyone's heart. It can save anyone from any type of sin and engender and, and the type of godliness that becomes the gospel, that becomes and looks like the gospel. And this is his message. That's why he's, he's stressing the idea that, yes, your audience is difficult. But guess what? The gospel works no matter what. This sound doctrine, it changes hearts and lives. It's strong enough to save. Regardless of cultural or national challenge or bias or stigma, this gospel is stronger than all of that. And I think that's what Paul is stressing to Titus. And such ought to be our stance as well. That regardless of who comes through our doors, who crosses the threshold of this church, we are able to help them. Why? Because we have the gospel in our hands. It doesn't matter who comes through that door. What background they have. This gospel is strong enough to save Strong enough to remake and reclaim any soul for God's glory. It's that strong. It's that good. This is the sound doctrine that Titus was to preach. Notice verse 5 of chapter 1. He says, for this cause. Left I thee in Crete that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. He's to set the church in order. He is to preach there. And what is he to preach? Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Really, that's the simplest way we can uh, sort of relay this message. Timothy, or Titus, excuse me. You're here. This is your message. Preach, speak sound doctrine. So here, what we're going to do is we're going to look at each chapter sort of individually quickly. Because each one really divides kind of nicely into its own sort of argument for how the gospel changes each sort of domain that Paul here references. So in chapter 1, he sort of talks about how we can contend for the gospel at church. And in chapter 2, he talks about how the go- we can contend for the gospel at home. And in chapter 3, he talks sort of about how we can contend for the gospel in all of our lives. In sort of everyday life, we might say. And he talks about in each scenario, in each sort of uh, domain, we might say, how this gospel changes us to live lives of godliness. And at the heart of that argument, at the heart of what he's talking about, is how that change happens. How they change is sort of the crux of his letter to Titus. So here, very quickly, let's look at chapter 1 and look at how we can contend for the gospel, contend for godliness at the church. This is all of chapter 1, these 16 verses. Titus here is left to oversee these churches at Crete, as we saw in verse 5. If you know your Bibles, you know that Titus is also mentioned in chapters 7 and 8 of 2 Corinthians. He's mentioned there by Paul, and he's explicitly called Paul's partner and fellow helper in that ministry, the ministry at Corinth, which you might remember, you might recall, was equally as difficult of a ministry. (laughs) The church at Corinth was notorious for lots and lots of very immoral, wicked acts. And there Titus was right alongside Paul, helping him in that church. He was Paul's partner there. But also, uh, I want to take you to this uh, verse really quickly. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. Because here we have a very striking instance of Titus' name mentioned in this letter to the church at Galatia. And it's for a very important reason. Which again, comes back to Paul's argument of how... That change towards godliness happens. So again verse 1 of chapter 2 of Galatians. Paul is writing. Then 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. Excuse me. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Which is a very important, very significant sentence in which Paul is right here writing. Why? Why? Because it harkens back to the crux of the ministry here at Galatia. If you remember why he's writing to the Galatian church. They have been um, sort of inundated, infected by this group of false teachers known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers of course were men who were contending that the old rites and rituals of the law were equally as important and significant and equally as uh, important conditions... For those in this modern church to adhere to. So they were saying just along with everyone else under the old covenant. That circumcision was necessary for faith. And that's why you can see this is Paul's argument. He brings along Titus as sort of a living, breathing example. This is the old rites, the old rituals. Which was symbolized by circumcision. They are not it sort of conditions for the gospel the only condition for the gospel is faith the only condition for this message galatian church which i'm preaching to you is faith which is why he galatians is a wonderful letter which i hope to preach through which is why he gives to that wonderful part in chapter 3 where he calls them foolish he says oh foolish galatians who has bewitched you why have you believed in another doctrine Another, another gospel. And he goes on to expound which Paul in this letter is so adamant, so sort of verbose in his language. Because he wants to get them to see that this is not at all the gospel. You who are contending that this old ritual and rite... Not just circumcision, but all of those old rituals and rites are necessary for faith. You are wrong, dead wrong. And he says even in chapter 1, if you preach any other gospel, let him be accursed. He's that forceful with it. You can see, he brings Titus along for that very point. He's making an explicit message to this church, which is what? That all that is necessary for salvation is faith. Godly living happens by faith. It doesn't happen by ritual or rite or any of those other works. It happens by faith. Again, which is why he is the perfect teacher to leave here at Crete. He's the perfect messenger of this same gospel. Look again at Titus 1 verse 4. Because Paul here writes, he says to Titus, "Mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. The common faith there. Expressive term. Sort of hearkening back to the idea that it's not just the Jews who have this faith. The Gentiles are now being brought into it as well. Why? Because faith is all that matters. Faith is the rubric by which we are measured as part of the family of God. Not our nationality, not our race, not our ethnicity, not our cultural background. None of that stuff matters. Not our ritual adherence. It's faith. The son of the common faith. He's a Greek. He's ministering to other Greeks. He's the perfect minister for this church. Because not only has Paul empowered him as sort of this living example of what the gospel means. He is one of their own. He can say, look at what the gospel does to my life. Apart from ritual ordinances and all those sorts of things. Because notice, look at who he's contending with. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. Paul writes, for there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped. Ooh, there it is. Look at who Titus is contending with. They of the circumcision. The same sort of teachers that were infecting the church of Galatia. The same sort of message is being, uh, is being brought to this church too. That yes, it's the gospel, but there's something else. That in order to change, there's something that you must do and accomplish. It's, it's yes, Jesus, and. Which is a, a false gospel. It's a false gospel which they were contending with. They were commingling. They were mixing old law with this new message of faith. Such is why here he says they have to be stopped. Their mouths must be stopped. These false teachers were claiming that salvation was linked to some sort of ordinance. Such is why in verse 15, look at what he says. Unto the pure all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. He's rebuking the notion that anyone in this life can make themselves pure in and of themselves. You are an undef- uh, an, a defiled sinner, he is saying. If you are turning to yourself, a source that is defiled, to make yourself undefiled, you're turning to a broken source. <laughs> it cannot be done. You cannot make yourself pure because you yourself are wholly impure. His argument here is just this. That purity, holiness, righteousness is not achieved through any sort of external means or practices or acts or deeds. Just like impurity cannot be ingested, he said. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. Pure. Reminds me of a sermon that we're going to get to uh, soon in Mark, Mark chapter 7, where Jesus is talking about the same exact thing. Remember in Mark chapter 7? It's also, I think, in Matthew chapter 15, where he talks about how impurity comes. It comes from inside the heart of man. This is exactly what Paul is saying. Purity, righteousness, holiness, is not an act. It's a gift. Righteousness isn't something we win or achieve through mysticism or moralism. It's something that we receive in faith. And this is his argument here. Titus, this is what you preach. These guys, they're preaching something wrong. They're ruining hearts and lives and homes. Look at what he says. Verse 11 again whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. They're doing it for dollars. They're doing it for the propping up of their own name. They're doing it and they're subverting. They're overthrowing. They're shipwrecking shipwrecking entire houses and families. They're messing with the truth of the gospel. And here, they're ruining the faiths Of entire families. Such is why Paul is so strong about this message. Hey, Titus, preach this. Titus, hey, this is your message. Titus, purity, holiness, righteousness is something that you receive by faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And your entire life, Titus, the entire life for you as the preacher and for you as your church, your entire lives are to be spent in living in light of this gift, by living in light of how this gift is given to you. And in that way, he makes that comparison. Look at verse 16. He says, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. Here he's saying, they profess To be teachers of the same things that you're teaching. But they're just pretenders. They don't know what they're talking about. He uses similar language. Perhaps not as explicit as Paul. Remember where Paul writes that he says. They don't know what they're talking about. They're ignorant of what they're teaching. (laughs) He's saying the same thing here. They're pretenders. They profess to know the truth. But they live completely opposite to the truth. They have no idea what they're talking about. And that's why he contrasts the difference in teachers. That's where you get that contrast in verses 6 through 9. Of what a bishop, a pastor, one who contends for the gospel at church looks like. And one that doesn't. That's why he says in verse 9 again. Or excuse me, in verse 11. That their mouths must be stopped. Hey Titus, here's your mission. You, Your mission is to speak the sound doctrine of God to verse 9, holding fast the faithful word. Such is what will stop the mouths, will muzzle these false teachers. Titus, you silence them by preaching nothing but the good news. Titus, you shut them up by preaching this faithful word of God. Which tells us where true holiness and purity and righteousness comes from. Not from ourselves, but from this one who comes and appears to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Titus, this is how you contend for the gospel at church at all times. But let's jump to chapter 2 because he shifts his focus. From contending for the gospel and godliness at church. Here he shifts it to the gospel and godliness at home. Look at what he says. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. That the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. That the aged women likewise that they be in behavior as becoming holiness. And he presses here into this idea that this doctrine... This sound doctrine, which we might also say is healthy. The healthy words and news of the gospel is to guide and direct and permeate every single relationship that you have. There's no relationship that you and I have which ought not to be saturated by the gospel. And he gives us pictures of what that looks like for the elderly men and for the elderly women. And then verse Uh, Four the young women. And then verse uh, 6. The young men as well. How do you conduct yourselves. According to the gospel. He gives you broad explicit pictures. Which just goes on to show us. That there is no interaction in life. That cannot be reordered by the gospel. You have a father who you are indifferent with. You have a a, a son or a daughter who is sort of estranged. You have a cousin who you've lost touch with. You have a brother which you haven't spoken to in years. You have family members which are lost to you. The gospel, the sound doctrine has words for those relationships. Has words for every single relationship that we have in this life. Has words for us. Right where we are. That ought to be adorned. Here, verse 3, with that behavior which becomes holiness. It looks and smells like Jesus is basically what he's saying. How you're supposed to live, how you're supposed to interact, everything. It should drive, everything should be driven and described by the fact that this holiness, again, the holiness that he was just talking about, that's not yours, that's given to you. It should describe every single person you interact with. How you talk with them. How you interact with them. How you speak to them on a daily basis. How you react to them when they react wrongly to you. It should become as it becomes holiness. Every motion, action, expression. Ought to be centered on this very fact. Centered on the fact that the holiness of Jesus Christ himself is given to us. Such is why, look at in verse 11. This is what he gets at. This is the crux, I think, of his entire letter. He says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Teaching us that, denying ungodliness... And worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us. That he might redeem us from all iniquity. And purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Titus, you want to contend for the gospel at home? Lean into this message. Lean into this message that the thing that teaches holiness, that teaches us to deny ungodliness, to deny worldly lusts and to live righteously. You know what it is? It's grace. It's not law. It's not order. It's not rule. It's grace. Grace teaches us this. Grace is what is teaching us here. This is what he's striving for Titus to preach. Titus, you know what's going to change your people? Not outward ordinance. It's grace that changes them from the inside out. It changes their heart. It reforms their soul. And that's what's going to reform their lives. You can change the outside. You can paint the outside with all types of good acts that you want. But it's not going to be anything but like Christ says in Matthew 23, whitewashed tombs full of empty, dead bones. It's not going to be anything that pertains to life or godliness. Titus, you know what you preach here? Preach that this, this grace... This grace of God as seen in the person of Christ, that's what changes you. That's what changes your people. These people who are known for being ferocious people, the Cretans, you know how they can change? You preach grace to them. Which might seem to us like sort of a confounding message. But such is the message of the Bible. You want to change? You want to really change? And not just change your behavior, but change your person. You lean into grace. This grace, as he says here, that appears to all men. Again, he's not saying. Just like Paul was saying in First Timothy chapter 2. That yes, Jesus is the ransom for all men. He's not saying that everyone's going to be saved. But he's saying this. That Jesus has paid everyone's ransom. He has appeared to all men at one point in time in the cross. And everyone has the same ability to accept that gift. And such is what will keep us from idle. From frivolous living. Is focusing on this. Such is why he says in verse 13, looking for that blessed hope. The blessed hope of our lives is the returning of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will one day, we will finally be united in that glorified body. And we will be who we were made to be. You want to contend for the gospel? This is your message, Titus. This is your message to everyone around you. This is the business that you were supposed to be busy with. It's building up others in the faith by showing and proving and demonstrating the gospel's effect in our lives. You know, this is uniquely uh, difficult and challenging for me, I'll just say. The idea of uh, changing people's hearts by preaching grace. You know why? Because sometimes I'd rather just lay down the law and have Lydia obey me. (laughs) And sometimes that's necessary and good and right. But I know that one day, when she is able to understand that she is a sinner, you know what's going to change her heart? It's not me forcing anything upon her, but giving her the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's what changes hearts and lives. Law? Yeah, it'll have an effect for a small time. It can change your behavior for a small amount of time. It can change your actions, but it'll never stick. You know what sticks? Grace does. Grace sticks. It stays. It changes. It says here it teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. To live righteously. Why? Because we have a righteousness that's not ours. It's been given to us by this God who dies for us, who takes our sins as his own. This is how we contend for the gospel at home. By pressing into this Jesus in all the little and petty moments of our life. See, That's something that I'm striving to do. It's not making every moment a sermon. But it's making every moment a a, a moment in which we can see Jesus at work. Those times when I would rather get really frustrated with my daughter because she's being, being disobedient, seeing her as a person who is lost that needs Jesus, that'll change my reaction to her. <laughs> or at least it should. <laughs> I hope it does. <laughs> it's seeing how the gospel affects all of your life every single moment. And how every moment can be a moment in which we are evidencing the gospel. Yes, even in how we react. Even in how we speak. Even in how we think. But next look in verse, or excuse me, chapter 3. Because he he presses into this last category here of how we can contend for the gospel in all of our life. In sort of everyday life we might say. Look at what he says, verse 1. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers. To obey magistrates. To be ready to every good work. To speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. Here he's broadening his focus away from just the life of the family at home to our life in society. Hey, you want to be those types of people that look like Jesus, that smell like Jesus? Hey, here, look, press into the gospel in this area of your life too. Remember the Cretans were a people who were nationalistic. They were very prideful. They were very, we might even say combative. And they often took matters into their own hands. They were known for being insubordinate. And here he is, he is speaking to them directly. Hey, don't listen to people who would rather rouse you to violence. That is not becoming the gospel. <laughs> rather... Grow in what he says here in gentleness, showing meekness unto all men. That's what becomes the gospel. That's what becomes godliness. Is this very thing showing them that the gospel changes them? How? Notice what he says. Look at verse 3. How are they to change? Look at verse 3: For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. What does he remind them of? That this was all of us. That we were all enslaved to sin at one point in time. That we were all the very worst of the worst sinners. That we were all, he says, sometimes foolish and disobedient. That your people, the Cretans, yes, they may be described by this, but this is everyone. We are all sinners. There is no tribe, no nationality, no ethnicity that is above another. Because we are all in the same predicament, which is what? We are condemned to eternity in hell unless our faith is in this Jesus. Unless he comes and changes us and saves us and reclaims us. It's that old familiar saying. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And it's not just cliche. It's the truth. We are all in that same boat. We were all sometimes disobedient and foolish and deceived. Such as why he can preach. Such as why Paul can lean into Titus and say, hey, this is the same message I'm giving Timothy, but it will change your people. Because it's the message of the gospel. It's the message of Jesus. It's the message of the truth. That yeah, you may be enslaved to sin and servants of yourselves. But these same sinners and servants to ungodliness have been reclaimed by God. In the person of Christ. This was all of us. And yet, look at verse 4. Jesus' appearance changes us. Look at verse 4. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Which he shed abroad on us abundantly. Through Jesus Christ Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Hey, Titus, this is your message right here. That this Jesus, he appeared and he brought with him the grace that reclaims us and the grace that remakes us. It's the grace that justifies you, that gives you a right standing before your heavenly father and judge. And it's also the same grace that changes you into his image as you live your daily lives. It's the same message. It's the same gospel. It's the same sound doctrine. It's the doctrine that we can't change ourselves. Notice what he says. Not by works of righteousness that we have done. Not by things we can do, not by ordinance, not by ritual, not by sacrifice, but by his own blood, by his mercy. You and I are not the agents of change in our own lives. The Holy Spirit is. This to me is one of the most sort of life-altering realities for me that, again, going back to my daughter Lydia... I cannot change her. I can, I can try and force her to do something that I want to do because she's two years old. But I cannot ultimately change her at all. I have no power to do that. Guess what? That's not my calling either. My calling isn't to change her. My calling is to point to the person that can and his name is Jesus I'm called to point to him and show her that through this radical gospel that we have, even her life can be changed and formed into the image of God. Such is all of our messages. We aren't the agents of change, but guess what? We point to the agents of change. His name is Jesus, and he gives us his spirit who changes us into his likeness, which is why he says, according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. You and I, we can't even change ourselves. I think about that in my own life. How many times I've prayed this one prayer to get rid of this one sin. <laughs> and I prayed it 15 years ago. God, let me not do that ever again. And here we are again 15 years later. And what are we doing? We're praying the same prayer over and over again. <laughs> Why? Why? It's oftentimes because we are relying on ourselves to make this change inside of us, but we can't do that. Morality cannot change us. Only the person who made us can change us, and fortunately, He gives us His Spirit to do just that very thing. This, to me, is the is the primary point of Titus's letter. Of or excuse me, later of Paul to Titus that the gospel is free for all, regardless of background, race, or nationality, and it's free, and it's so free that it's going to change you. He links this idea between doctrine and devotion, between our belief and our behavior. And I think that's so important. Because we don't just preach a message that is, 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 is sort of like a get out of jail free card. Grace is not a sin license. Grace is the message of change. But change through a certain order. Not through you, but through the Holy Spirit of God. Who changes you from the inside out. What good are we doing if we are not preaching change In our own lives. Preaching this gospel that changes lives. I would say that the church is of no good. If what we believe does not affect how we live. If these things are things that you say you believe and hold to your heart most dear. It should affect the things that you say. The words that you think. The actions that you take. The reactions that you have. It should affect your entire life. And I think that's exactly what he's stressing to Titus. He's stressing how you change though. Quickly, let me just point this out to you. Three chapters. It's um, doing the math on the fly. 46 verses. It's a short letter. And in it, he mentions the word Savior six times. He's getting you to see that how you change, it's through your Savior. It's the one who reclaims you. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. But hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Verse 4. At the end, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Verse 10 of chapter 2. Adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, verse 13. And the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4 of chapter 3. The kindness and love of, of, of God, our Savior toward man, has appeared. And verse 6. Which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He's trying to get Titus to see... Exactly how they are to change. You want to live godly? Live in light of what your savior has done for you. You want to live a truly godly life? It's going to look like this. It's going to look like this. Why? Because you are living in light of what your savior has done for you. The religion that we have. Is a religion that is lived. It's a religion that is not a scheme of merit or earning or winning. It's a religion that just proves what is true. When you are contending for the gospel at home, in your life, at church, you're proving what is true. You're not winning something. You're not meriting something. You're not earning a secret little uh, holiness badge to add to your resume. You're proving what is true. Which is what? That Jesus saves sinners and makes them into his image. You're proving that. You're showing it to the world. And this is the message that we have. It's the message that we are called to live, it's the message that we are called to uh, proclaim. Look with, it, with me at verse 8 of chapter 3, and I'll close with this. Because he says, This is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly. That they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Live like you believe. The things that you say you believe. Let them affect the way that you live. Those who say they believe ought to live exactly the same way. Such is why he's encouraging them, inciting them, inviting them. Live exactly like this. I'm sorry for the popping there. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Sorry about that. Anyways, I'm just going to hold my jacket open and see if it just changes. I think it's my jacket hitting it. This is the message that we have It's the message of grace, the grace that changes us, the grace that affects us, the grace that radically reforms us from the inside out. It's the message Titus was called to preach to this country, to this church here at Crete. it's the message we are called to preach even now in this day, in the 21st century. It's the same message. You know what encourages me? That we have the same exact message that Titus did. Because we, we are called to preach to the same exact sinners that Titus was preaching to. The message hasn't changed. Our audience hasn't changed. We preach this message. Contend for the gospel. Let us pray.